0: Grace to you and peace from the God who is our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, amen. We consider together this day our lesson from 1 John chapter 3, which identifies us to be children of God already now. In our worship, we're being reminded that we are living in the time in between, in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. His coming in humility and his second coming in glory. And so the story of our lives is a story of waiting. And it's also a story of hidden glory. That idea of Waiting in Hidden Glory is, in my mind, connects this lesson with half-dozen or so hospital visits I made at Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York City my first year in the ministry, late 1981, early 1982. The policy for this ICU waiting room was that there was just a a 10-minute window for visitors every two hours. And because I was traveling about an hour by bus and subway to, to get there, I always wanted to make sure I was there early. So generally speaking, the waiting room was full, and the people there were from all over the world, from, from Europe, from South America, and from the Orient. didn't really know much about those people. But I guess I would say in regard to one family, uh, uh, a wife and what I assume to be two daughters, um, I didn't really have a clue as to who they were. And I probably never would have known who they were if not for the fact that as I came the one time, the husband who was in the near corner of the ICU was was expected to die. So there was a a Buddhist priest sitting cross-legged on a coffee table in the one corner and what really caught my attention was the two daughters were dressed in silk robes floor-length robes. Absolutely, absolutely beautiful. At that point I found out that on most of those visits I had been seated six feet away from a queen and that on my way to the far corner of the ICU I had passed by the bed of a, a dying king. Their marriage had made the cover of Life magazine in the mid-60s. He was or had been the king of a principality named Sikkim lay between India and, and China. But he had been deposed, and so you might say it's not just a story of hidden glory, but glory that was just plain gone. Sometimes those ten minutes visiting that young man in the opposite corner were about too long. He had been afflicted with a very severe case of something called scleroderma, an autoimmune disease. It attacks the inner organs. It also attacked the skin. So he, he was sore from head to toe, sicker than anybody I've ever seen in, in my whole life. The connection I make with this between what I learned when that king was dying was that nobody would have looked at that young man and said, here is a glorious child of God. In our time of waiting for glory, the challenge isn't just that we don't see the glory of the saints in heaven. The challenge is in what we see with our eyes. The suffering, the difficulty, the pain, the heartache that is part of our lives as children of God. The kind of thing that can raise questions in our mind as to what our identity really is. I think early on I I had a Sunday school or a grade school teacher who commented on 1 John 3, you have the wealthiest father in town. And more so. I'm pretty sure fairly soon the thought struck me, if my dad is so rich, why don't I have more stuff? Why don't I have better stuff? One of five kids of, uh, of, of in a parsonage, growing up in a parsonage, again and again I'd hear about classmates or see classmates at school who got newer stuff or better stuff or fancier stuff. If my father is so wealthy, wealthy, if our God is so rich and powerful, why doesn't he give us more? And certainly John would have seen that in his life and experienced that in times of persecution and, and beyond. Yet he doesn't hesitate to proclaim the way things really are. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Now, the Greek literally says what great love God has given to us, and yet the word lavish really catches the meaning of it and the implications of how great love. To lavish is to pour out, to give generously. Now, my father used to tease us in pouring milk or maybe juice or soda give us just a few drops in the bottom of the glass and ask, is that enough? That's not how God gives. He has poured out his love upon you, calling you his child. He called you by name. He he redeemed you. You are his. That's what he said in your baptism. He put his name on you, claiming you as his own. So John proclaims that truth, but he recognizes the challenge of it, and so he says, and that is what we are right now. Not a future possibility, but a present, glorious reality. We're used to talking about Jesus having a state of humiliation and a state of exaltation. It's, a, it's kind of a way of processing those things that that don't seem to fit as we're dealing with the story of, of Jesus. In his state of humiliation, he set aside the full use of his divine power and glory to, glory to live and die in a lowly way. And so he didn't know the time of, of the judgment. And so, so he slept. And so he ate, and he got weary and tired. We're used to thinking of that in terms of Jesus, who then took up that divine power and glory to assure us that we've, we've been redeemed. But if we listen carefully, we recognize John is saying that we too have a state of humiliation and a state of exaltation. There is a glory that is real that is yours. And just as it is real, it is also thoroughly hidden. John writes, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Our first thought might be, think, well, the world doesn't recognize me as a child of God because I don't always speak or act in a way that fits with that identity. But that's not what John is thinking. The reason the world doesn't recognize you as a child of God is the very same reason it didn't recognize Jesus, because his glory was hidden. His glory had to be hidden, otherwise the rulers of this age would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So our identity is hidden. Dear friends, literally loved ones, Now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. So the story of our lives is that of hidden glory. The fact that we suffer, the fact that we struggle doesn't mean that we're doing something wrong. It is part of God's plan to bring us to glory but we know something for sure. We know that when he, that is, when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. It's been called the beatific vision, that seeing what Christ is like will change what we are like once and for all with the glory that those saints in heaven are enjoying already n- ready now. What do we have to say to God's people who are are suffering? What did I have to say to that seventeen year old who had less than a year to live, ravaged ravaged by disease? We can remind him who he is. We don't have to tell him this is what you have to be or become. He didn't have the strength to pay attention for more than a minute or two at that. But to be able to say this is what God has said about you, this is who you are. You mean something to him and you will see him. And seeing him will reveal your glory. Now, What exactly is that glory all about? Certainly to be free from the challenges, the tribulations of this world. But no small part of that glory is that you and I will be like Him, like Him in respect to love. That is really the substance of our hope one of the great things that God tells us to expect, that we will be beyond sin and shame. A grade school student once told his mom, and she passed it on to me, that he had said, I wish I could die so I could stop sinning. I once shared Revelation 7, the second half of that lesson that we, that we heard today with the 13 year old who was dying from a brain tumor. Uh, Her grandmother reminded me of something I had somehow forgotten. I asked the girl after I had read that beautiful section, What do you think? What do you think of that? She said, It sounds boring. Well, I think I know what she was thinking about. Being before the throne of God and serving him day and night in his temple sounds like an eternal worship service. Maybe not a big selling point for a 13-year-old. But that other boy probably could have connected with that. What is it that interrupts your service of God here and now besides sleep? It's sin. Sin will no longer be in the picture. Nothing in us to produce guilt and shame. We will see him and we will be like him. So John tells us there's a conclusion that we need to draw from this. It's really something that flows naturally. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Think of all the way that purity matters to society, to our society. Ah, It matters to us. Concern that goes down to parts per per million regarding the purity of the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, the medicine that we take in. But how is it that, if we want to echo the thought of the writer to the Hebrews, that the marriage bed is to be kept pure, that it's not something dirty, it's something that is meant to be kept pure, that people are—they're more than just disinterested in that. They dismiss that as just being wrong thinking. Jesus died so that we might be pure. If our hope is to be pure with Him in heaven, then our hope here and now is to pursue that blessing more and more. A biblical idea of love is dismissed by many, but but certainly we should recognize the beauty of it. As Paul describes it to the Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. As much as that standard of love condemns me and confronts me, I must also hold to the thought that that's God's plan for what you and I will be like for all eternity. The story of our lives now is a story of of hidden glory. And so we are waiting for something new and glorious and wonderful beyond our imagination. To be with Christ, that is our hope. But to be like Christ, that too is our hope. Amen.